Hello and welcome to Medic in the Middle. Uh, Medic in the Middle is a new podcast exploring a range of different topics, issues and articles um, based around uh, pre-hospital and in-hospital care. It's hosted by myself, a registered paramedic working within the West Midlands. I'm Tom Alderson. Uh, the first series is going to guest um, sort of a range of different uh, people from both in-hospital and pre-hospital services. Today we're going to be talking about traumatic cardiac arrest and I have with me um, critical care paramedic Ryan Ferris. Hello Ryan. Hi Tom. Um, Ryan has received extra training dealing with uh, trauma patients and critically ill patients and currently works for the Midlands Air Ambulance Charity. Um, so yeah, I think we should just uh, dive straight into uh, this podcast. Traumatic cardiac arrest then, like I haven't really got a, a definition for it as such, but it, there are some distinct differences, aren't there, to a medical cardiac arrest? Yeah, I think that's, I think that's true. Um, I think... Th- in essence, they're two very different entities. Um, I think that the first thing that we have to sort of acknowledge and probably um, is the reason for some of the, the difficulties in managing these cases is that this is a rare entity. I think for, for most ambulance trusts and mm-hmm. most ambulance crews to, to come across a traumatic cardiac arrest is, is a rare event and that makes it difficult. Um, with regards to a definition of traumatic cardiac arrest, I think, and I believe it was Tim Nutbeam with uh, Devon Air Ambulance who, who stated, if we consider traumatic cardiac arrest as a symptom rather than a diagnosis, then yeah, I, I think yeah. that makes it um, quite clear to understand our treatment protocols. Yeah. Um, but I think we'll probably talk about that a bit later in the podcast. For me, the, the difference between a medical cardiac arrest and a traumatic cardiac arrest, it's um, have an understanding of the ideology of the arrest. Um, if we consider a medical cardiac arrest where the underlying pathological processes tend to affect the heart's ability to pump, um, so i.e. a primary cardiac event or a electrolytes or chemical imbalance, um, but the biggest difference being that the heart is still full, the heart's still got blood and it's able to contract and, and deliver that blood around the body, whereas in a uh, traumatic instance it's normally a cardiac arrest of a different cause. So whether that be blunt trauma, penetrating trauma as a result of asphyxiation or mm-hmm. burns. Yeah. Yeah, I've got something here from the Royal College of Surgeons of uh, Edinburgh as well. Um, kind of just links in a little bit with what you're talking about, how rare they are as an incidence. So they've got an incidence rate of 0.6% for cardiac arrest associated with trauma. Um, so. I think you mentioned as well, this includes patients who have suffered uh, blunt or penetrating trauma, um, patients who have sustained asphyxiation, uh, electrocution, burns or or drownings. Um, And I think what's important to mention in these types of arrests as well is that the survival rates for patients are quite substantially lower than um, medical arrests tend to be. Um, Well, the majority of studies here, from this is from the Surgeons of Edinburgh, you might have some anecdotally different kind of experience, but their figures state sort of a survival rate between 5.1% and 7.7%. Yeah, yeah, and I think to, to go back to your first statement, yes, this is a rare event, and as you say, evidence from TARN suggests just how rare that is with it making up 0.6% of uh, their database. Um, I think to talk about traumatic cardiac arrest and survival rates as a single entity is difficult. Mm. Um, What we do know is that those who have suffered traumatic cardiac arrest following hypovolemia or or true exsanguation have got uh, quite, they've got quite poor outcomes and uh, quite low survival rates. Um, If we look at the isolated traumatic brain injury patient Mm -hmm. or those who have suffered a hypoxic insult then actually they've got quite quite um, good survival rates and survival rates that would be on par with, with what we see within the medical cardiac arrest population within mm. within the UK at least. I think like you said, it's just it all comes down to those reversible causes at the end of the day, doesn't it? Like what's caused that arrest and then what out of that can we correct? Yeah. Um, 
So I think it's really important for pre-hospital clinicians like ourselves to, um, you know, try and establish that cause of arrest because it can be, I guess, somewhat misleading. For example, um, you know, this is from the GR Calc um, app. So establishing the cause of cardiac arrest may not always be straightforward. Um, primary medical arrests can occur before secondary traumatic arrests. So, for example, um, you know, 40-year-old uh, chaps driving down the road, he has an MI and plows his car into a wall. He then goes into cardiac arrest, but it's trying to judge, isn't it? Did that arrest happen as a yeah. result of his uh, myocardial infarction, or did it happen as a result of said trauma from the RTC? Yeah, and I think I think that's a that's a difficulty that we face almost day in within pre-hospital care in the mm. fact that we we haven't got the, the history that we would like. We haven't got the investigations perhaps to hand that would, would allow us to uh, determine that. And I think as you rightly say, I think the literature states that 15% of traumatic cardiac arrests actually have a medical ideology. So I think it's down to you as the clinician on scene you apply your clinical acronym, you, you take the history, you have an understanding of the mechanism mm. and you need to make that judgment call as to whether this is a medical or a traumatic cause of the arrest. Yeah, sure. I, I think what's probably important to say is that if there's any uncertainty or if you believe there may be a medical cause, then I think your default should be to treat that as a medical cardiac arrest yeah, and follow yeah. our standard uh, ALS guidelines. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, I, I agree, and I, that is also what the GR Calc suggests as well. They suggest if there's any doubt, sort of take it down a medical route first, yeah. try and correct your 4Hs and 4Ts, um, etc. Cool. So that kind of leads us nicely on to chest compressions in traumatic <laughs> cardiac arrest. The kind of, um, yeah, a little, it, little bit controversial <laughs> uh, statement in it, to say the least. But so there's been sort of a few different studies around this, but there's no sort of actual definitive human evidence so far, apart from kind of anecdotal and sort of retrospective studies, really. Yeah. Um, but there is no studies out there at the moment on humans. But there's a quite a good one on pigs that was done, I believe. Uh, there was, yes, and I, I think, as you rightly say, I think over over the last number of years, the um, discussion or or times the the heated arguments around. Uh, the application of closed chest compressions in a in a traumatic cardiac arrest setting has become quite um, quite a key point of discussion. And and again, as you rightly say, I think um, I think we'll probably continue to come back to this throughout the podcast. But if we look at the guidance from ILCOR or the European Resuscitation Council mm-hmm. or the Royal College of Emergency Medicine, to name a few. Nowhere there does it state that there's not a place for closed chest compressions, mm-hmm. but I think what we have to understand is there's probably uh, scope and there probably is instances where we need to de-emphasize yeah, those I, chest I compressions. Yeah, I was about to say, I think it was Ilcor, wasn't it, that said that it, they shouldn't be uh, withheld as such, but it's more that they should be de-emphasized yeah, um, very much so. focus on correcting those reversible causes. And that's it. And I think if we go back to what we stated at the start, traumatic cardiac arrest is a symptom, mm-hmm. not a diagnosis. So mm-hmm. we, we need to put our focus on to addressing those reversible causes. Um, unfortunately, if we consider the pre-hospital environment, if we attend this as a ambulance crew, there's likely two of you on board that. These are generally quite under-resourced scenes in yeah. the initial five, ten minutes of, of managing these cases. Um, and as an example, and we'll, we'll look at a few examples as we go on, I'm sure if we talk about a patient who sustained a central stab wound who's arrested as a result of that, you're very resource limited. Yeah. So I think the application of chest compressions may then take you away from intervening with the the more time critical interventions and identifying and, and subsequently treating those reversible causes. Yeah, absolutely. I think, yeah, like you said, it ultimately just depends on what's caused this kind of constellation of symptoms, isn't it, that, that, that's sort of causing this patient issues at the moment? Yeah, yeah, very much so. Um, and again, if we were talking about traumatic cardiac arrest, uh, and especially talking about those who are hypovolemic mm. or those who have arrested because of a, an obstructive pathology. So so if we consider a tension pneumothorax or a cardiac tamponade, it's very unlikely that compressions are going to be effective until we treat those underlying reversible causes. Uh-huh. 
Absolutely. Would you like a mince pie? Oh, I feel like your podcast is going to lose some viewings now. <laughs> I don't like mince it is, pies. It is almost Christmas though, isn't it? Like, I, and I am very much a Christmas person, but right. I just don't like mince pies. I will, however, um, have one of those uh, Viennese whirls. You can have one of the Viennese whirls. Excellent, thank you. Um, whilst you have a Viennese whirl, I'm going to continue to talk about chest compressions, if that's okay. Yes. Right. So, there's a really good paper um, on traumatic cardiac arrest called What's Hot and What's Not by um, critical care paramedic Aidan Brown, um, which was wrote in 2018. So, he talks about a few different bits to do with chest compressions. Um, so, Lockie et al., um, who actually developed the HOT algorithm, which we'll talk about later, after yes. Ryan's finished his... Uh, confectionery <laughs> <laughs> that shouldn't take too long so yeah he developed this hot algorithm and they kind of talk a bit about chest compressions and they state that patients in traumatic cardiac arrest may still benefit a little bit um, from the blood flow provided from chest compressions but I think really more is to do with the situational context like if you've got enough resources to be able to pop those chest compressions on whilst other um, corrections can be made to the patient's uh, symptoms then then great but obviously if you're there as a lone responder or you're in a, a crew of two or whatever, then maybe it's more pertinent to crack on with the reversible causes, which we'll get on to. Um, fear not. Yeah. Just as soon as Ryan's at his biscuit. Um, yeah, so chest compressions, in summary, may provide some blood flow, but you know, maybe just focus on those important reversible causes, which we'll come on to as part of the HOT algorithm. Now, we did talk about a study on pigs, didn't we? <laughs> yeah, I think we mentioned that before we... Uh talked about the biscuits and the cakes yeah um and yeah you're right you're, you're right in what you said so in 2017 um i'm, gonna, I'm gonna have one of these viennese worlds yeah, yeah. whilst you talk about the pigs now actually uh, what's et al they did a study titled closed chest compressions reduced survival in an animal model of hemorrhage induced traumatic cardiac arrest um and in a very brief summary and by no means should this be uh taking place for actually reading the paper and, and making your own interpretation from that. They took 39 terminally anaesthetized swine mm -hmm. and they induced these pigs into a traumatic cardiac arrest state um, via a means of hypovolemia. Uh, when it was determined that the pigs were now in a traumatic cardiac arrest state, which was uh, defined as a map of less than 50 millimeters of mercury. Mm -hmm. uh, the pigs or the swine were randomized to one of five resuscitation protocols. And we'll just, we'll just talk about those very quickly. So the five resuscitation protocols, you could have been randomized to closed chest compressions only, randomized to IV whole blood, randomized to IV normal saline, randomized to a combination of ch closed chest compressions and normal saline um, or you could have been randomized to a protocol of closed chest compressions and IV whole blood. Um, it's probably worth noting just that the compressions in this instance they were delivered through a mechanical CPR device uh -huh. so, like, a bit like the Lucas, or is that yeah, like, yeah exactly well, that a Lucas for pigs? A Lucas for pigs. So they did <laughs> use the Lucas device in this study. Yeah, um, and I think that's probably got some importance as it replicates that the CPR quality is the same throughout each of these. Yeah, uh, sure, it keeps a bit of consistency. Yes, study, yeah, very it? much so. And I think when we talk about closed chest compressions, especially within the sort of pre-hospital setting now, I think this paper gets quoted quite a lot, and I think rightly so it should but I would just be cautious of its interpretation. So the biggest thing to come from this mm -hmm. was that those swine who were randomized to closed chest compressions only at no point achieved any ROSC. Right. Whereas with each of the other groups, those who receive saline, those who received whole blood, or a combination of both, yeah, yeah. achieved either a ROSC or a partial ROSC at, at some point throughout their resuscitation. Right. Um, and my sort of, my interpretation of this, um, so take it with a pinch of salt, I think there, there's subtle differences um, in this study and I don't believe it's a true representation of the pre-hospital environment in which we work. No. At the point no. where these swine were uh, defined to be in traumatic cardiac arrest, treatment was initiated at that point. 
Yeah. Um, it would be very rare for us to ever be in attendance at the point where somebody goes into traumatic cardiac arrest. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the fact that these pigs were in a hypovolemic state, we have to um, allow for the potential that that these swine were, rather than being in a true traumatic cardiac arrest, they were in a low outflow state. Yeah, so, I, I agree. Well, that's what like you know that's what this guy uh, Watts twenty seventeen exactly said about the study when I was reading about. Yeah, um, he concluded that you know like you said the, the pigs were in a low flow state because the treatment was commenced so soon. Um, so you know it, unless the arrest is witnessed by clinicians, it's unlikely that the patient is our patient sort of day to day going to present in a, in a low flow state. Yeah, yeah, very much so. And if they are in this low flow state. Then, then the treatment priorities has to be um, correction of that low flow state and they need volume resuscitation ideally with blood and I think as we would expect just performing closed chest compressions isn't going to be beneficial in this study. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, Brill, quickly just coming back to um, that kind of uh, chest compressions lark just very quickly before we move on. Um, I think it might be quite good for some of our ambulance colleagues just to um, be aware of the GR Calc advice on this as well. Yes. Um, so the GR Calc um, guidelines state that rapid treatment of reversible causes should take priority over chest compressions. And oh, is that a little honk of an ambulance there? Yeah, we are recording this in an ambulance station, everyone. So they, they um, do support your statement. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so anyway, yeah. Um, Rapid treatment of reversible causes should take priority over chest compressions and ALS drug administration. However, high quality chest compressions are important and may generate some forward flow, which I think we kind of did touch on a little bit. Even in cases of severe hypovolemia um, or cardiac tamponade, it is therefore important to continue chest compressions as soon as sufficient personnel are available to allocate someone to the task. Just chomping on your your viennese well there, try not to make too much noise. (laughs) Um, and they also state that undertake only essential life-saving interventions on scene Um, the patient does have sign of life so pulse chest rise and fall respiratory efforts movements eye movements or shockable rhythms etc rapidly transfer the patient to hospital or arrange a rendezvous with enhanced critical care support that's you that's me that is you that's a scary thought yeah, I think that's about all we need to do on chest compressions. We can kind of move on a little bit from that. I, I Unless you've got anything else you want to... No, I think I think I completely agree with what you've said there. And I think when we look at the, the hot uh, mnemonic and sort mm-hmm. of look at the reversible causes of traumatic arrest, um, at a later point, I think we will probably inadvertently come back to discussing the rule of chest compressions again. Yeah, brilliant. Um, so the next I've got that we could talk about is the use of adrenaline. I haven't got too much on this, but I've just got a little bit, so maybe we could just chat quickly about that. Yep, yep. Um, so there's not really much evidence to support the use of IV adrenaline in patients with traumatic cardiac arrest. Um, the use of adrenaline in non-traumatic cardiac arrest has recently kind of been brought into question a little bit um, with some of the adrenaline trials have gone on. But um, there's a lack of kind of evidence from randomised controlled trials for either the use of a high dose or standard dose of adrenaline in these sort of cohort of patients. Um, the hypovolemic tra- traumatic cardiac arrest does um, not occur immediately after the traumatic insult, which is what we kind of mentioned with these pigs, isn't it, and this kind of low yes. flow state that they go into. So there's a period of deterioration until the output is lost, um, during which the patient will undergo like a maximal uh, cat- catecholamine release and vasoconstriction. Um, so, given the patient vasopressors could in fact worsen tissue perfusion at this point, um, patients um, sort of undergoing neuro- neurogenic shock are an exemption to this rule because they've lost their own kind of sympathetic vascular yes. tone. Yep. Um, there's an increased risk of mortality in adults with blunt trauma when vasopressors are used. Um, one case study suggested that vasopressin may be more beneficial, but it's not really been followed up with any further published evidence yet, other than animal models. So, Yeah, and again, I don't think I've got a great deal more to add on what you've just said, Tom. I think you've summed it up quite nicely. And for me, adrenaline in traumatic cardiac arrest is not a priority. Mm-hmm. Uh, and exactly for the reasons that you said, uh, adrenaline... It's got quite significant alpha effects, so causes vasoconstriction, 
these patients, whether they're in a, a low outflow state or in true traumatic cardiac arrest, they're already maximally sympathetically stimulated. Yeah. Um, and exactly as you say, we're just going to worsen that and subsequently have a have a detrimental and have a negative effect on underlying uh, physiology. So for me, um, in the same role as chest compressions, um, the administration of adrenaline should most definitely be de-emphasized. Mm-hmm. And it'd be quite interesting to see if it has any role in the future within a certain set of traumatic cardiac arrests. Again, yeah. none of this can be black and white because there's so many causes and so many underlying ideologies of traumatic cardiac arrest. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we'll probably touch on it a bit later, but you've already touched on the the neurogenic patient who actually will benefit from from some alpha uh, yeah, stimulation and sure. improve that that vasoconstriction. Cool. Um, so, should we talk a little bit about these hot principles that, that yeah. we keep mentioning, and then you know, we, we probably should cover that, shouldn't we? It's fairly <laughs> fairly important part to um, the traumatic cardiac arrest algorithm. Um, do you want to start us off? Yeah, I can do, and I feel like I'm probably starting to repeat myself now but I think the biggest thing for me to try and get across um, by, by doing this um, is the fact that there is no black or white answer there is no one size fits all when we talk about yeah. traumatic cardiac well, arrest every, every single one of these patients is going to be different aren't they like, yes. it depends on the context of what's happened to them like we said there's so many different um, you know causes that come under like the traumatic cardiac arrest is a, a balloon yes. statement isn't it there's burns yes. asphyxiation there's you know we could do a whole podcast on each one of those yeah um, definitely definitely but, you know really yeah if we just kind of get a summary today but there's yeah i think i agree there's there's, there's so it's so vast isn't it mm. yeah um so then i suppose the question is how do we decide what treatment the patient requires uh, and again that's not something we're going to answer today within this podcast alone um but i think we need to make that decision and I think we can only make that decision through an experience of these jobs and having an understanding of the cause of the arrest and if we can have a a working diagnosis as to why this patient's arrested Mm -hmm. then I think that makes it a bit easier and that then I think quite quite nicely allows us to to come into your hot principles um I'm sure this term hot is not new for anybody now I think this is this like closed chest compressions is a, I was going to say a really hot topic. Um, <laughs> I need to think of a better word than that because a that's spi- a spicy topic. A spicy topic. <laughs> oh God. <laughs> yeah, it's a spicy topic currently, um, and I think it's probably just worth going through those quite yeah. briefly, just to make sure that everybody's happy and has an understanding as to what we're talking about. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, sure. And again. If you refer back to the European Resuscitation Council guidelines or, so or ILCOR, so much paper. You will, uh, um, you're able to access the algorithms. But HOT, it identifies, like in a medical cardiac arrest, the potential causes and the reversible causes of this arrest. So H, H stands for hypovolemia, and how are we going to manage this hypovolemia? So we need to address both internal and external hemorrhage. So for me at this point, this is basic first aid management. We manage catastrophic hemorrhage. Mm-hmm. If we have a suspicion that there's an underlying unstable pelvic fracture, then we manage that accordingly. If there's any long bone fractures, and by long bone, I think in this instance, I'm probably talking about humerus and femurs. Yep. We, we bring them back into into normal anatomical alignment. And this is just, I think in these kind of situations, there's no time to be getting like Kendrick splints out. I think this is just literally um, grabbing those long bones and just, just trying to get yeah. them back into neutral alignment. Very the much so. That, that would be my approach at this stage. We're just trying to get everything looking how it should be, I think, to get a traction device out just complicates matters at this point mm-hmm. well there's yeah there's, there's time nor resources is, yes is yes of the essence, we've, really, we've already it? alluded to the fact that these these uh scenes are, are quite often under resourced so if we can yeah. do the basics we'll do them well uh oh so o stands for oxygenation and again this is uh dependent on what your patient needs and also your your scope of practice and your skill set as to how we manage this but uh ensuring that we have a secure airway um, and allowing adequate oxygenation and ventilation to this patient. T, 
stands for both tension pneumothorax and cardiac tamponade. So again, um, our priorities when we get there, uh, if this is a polytrauma patient who suffered blunt trauma or a patient who suffered penetrating trauma to their cardiac box, then we, we, we want to quite early on decompress that chest, be that with a needle um, or if it's within your scope of practice, a scalpel and performing some finger forecostomies. And cardiac tamponade. So this one, this again is a very rare entity, um, but if you have your enhanced care team on scene, they may want to undertake a forecotomy to try and relieve that tamponade and uh-huh. improve the, uh, the cardiac output. Brilliant. And is that more in uh, sort of penetrating trauma, or is that I know blunt trauma? They're not so keen really to do thoracotomies. Again, probably just so dependent on the, the scenario, really. Yeah, it is. It is dependent on the scenario, but definitely a lot of guidelines and a lot of SOPs are moving towards this is only to be undertaken in the penetrating trauma mm-hmm. patient uh, due to the the likely underlying cause of uh, of the traumatic arrest. And it's such strict criteria that needs to be met because the survival rates from this isn't fantastic mm-hmm. um, and it's quite an invasive procedure. Yeah, and it's not without its risks either. As a, you know, It's quite easy to get like a needle stick or you know, a sharp injury off, off somebody's ribs, isn't it? Yeah, rib- very much yeah. so, very much so. I think these are, um, for a lot, quite high-pressured, quite high-intensity scenes. Uh, there's a lot of concurrent activity going on there's a lot of fractured bones there's scalpels there's needles so this is a high risk environment so i think as you rightly say the the safety of yourself and your colleagues also has to has to be paramount um when considering something like this yeah absolutely absolutely um so yeah if if i if i may um just quickly coming back to the first part of the algorithm so the hypovolemic part Mm -hmm. um we're not going to kind of brush on this too heavily, but just kind of talking about fluid resuscitation that you mentioned, or um, whether well, whether we're lucky enough to have whole blood products or fluids, yes, uh, whatever's available to us. But I think it's important to uh, bear in mind as pre-hospital clinicians um, the kind of the, the the merit of crystalloid fluids in this kind of scenario, um, and to be aware of the guidelines kind of surrounding that. So, Joe um, Calks. For example, they mentioned that hypovolemia uh, due to blood loss that is sufficient in volume to cause a cardiac arrest is difficult to treat. Yeah, I'll, I'll, yeah. I'll go with that. Yeah, I'll go. I'll roll with that. Um, so they advise to gain uh, large bore IV access, which I think we're going to do in these scenarios anyway. Just well bilaterally, if possible, as well. Um, so although IV normal saline may restore blood volume, often requiring two to three liters in these patients who have excessively kind of played out. Um, crystalloid may worsen uh, some coagulopathies. Um, they may sort of contribute towards worsening acidosis in these patients. And because the fluids are going to be quite cold on the ambulance, yep. um, you know, especially this time of year, a bit chilly outside, it's going to worsen the hypothermia um, as well, which in these patients is going to worsen their outcomes of survival because it just comes back to that traumatic, um, you know, the, the triad of trauma, yes. doesn't it? So you've got hypothermia, acidosis, and coagulopathies, which, you know, pumping them full of just loads of uh, salty water, for want of a better word, is probably not going to be doing the patients the most of favours. Um, so J.R. Calc suggests requesting enhanced care, particularly if it enables blood or blood products to be brought to scene without delay. Ryan, do you have anything else to add about what we should be doing uh, kind of post-ROSCs in terms of IV fluids with these patients? Yeah, and again, Tom, I think the fluid resuscitation in the post-ROSC patient, I think it's very much dependent on the suspected cause of the traumatic arrest. Our endpoint systolic blood pressures and our endpoint map that we're looking to achieve is going to differ from the uh, TBI, the traumatic brain injured patient, the isolated traumatic brain injured patient, to those who have sustained uh, central penetrating trauma, to those who have sustained uh, polytrauma through a, a blunt mechanism. Um, so I think just targeting the volume to to your endpoints within your own local governance system. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that makes sense. So essentially, we don't want 
the BPs to be too high if the patient has a central stab wound yeah. um, as to not kind of make the hemorrhaging worse, if you like. Yeah. But we still want to maintain um, cerebral perfusion pressures in the patients who have had that traumatic, like so the isolated traumatic brain injury. We're probably aiming for higher um, BPs in that cohort yeah, of exactly patients. Yeah, exactly that, exactly that. And again, it's, it's this... Uh uh, this tailored patient care in the, in the isolated traumatic brain injury, as you say, we're trying to prevent secondary injury. So we can do that by maintaining good MAP, good systolic blood pressure. But in the central penetrating patient who's exsanguinated or who was hemorrhaging, then we don't want to push the pressure as such where it's going to worsen that. So yeah, target to target to what you believe the underlying cause to be. Perfect. Oh, a siren. How fitting. Cool. So just before we move on then, um, I think we probably should just talk about uh, fluid research intra-arrest or like during during an arrest prior to that ROS that we've just uh, mentioned. So, I mean, do you see a, a role for fluids during an arrest? Because I know there's two different kind of, like you said, entities at play here. There's like the low flow state mm-hmm. um, where there is still some, some contractility of the heart, isn't there? Yeah. And then there is also that point where the patient is in true arrest if you like yeah yeah very much so and i think um both of those entities would would benefit from fluid resuscitation i think um aggressive fluid resuscitation in the low flow state mm. uh, may, may generate an improvement in in their condition um, and likewise those who have a true traumatic cardiac arrest from a true exsanguation point of view uh, are going to require fluid resuscitation uh, what fluid you administer that depends on your service and your setup locally as to what you give uh, but I think for most pre-hospital ambulance trusts within the UK setting that's currently normal saline uh-huh. uh, 0.9% <laughs> uh, or some salty water and, and that is a, that's a topic of controversy and causes a lot of interest in debate and conversations ideally in an ideal setup and in an ideal world we would give all of these patients blood products we would give them uh, warmed blood products with the ability to carry oxygen we would give them clotting factors Um, but this isn't a setup we have currently within the uk pre-hospital environment Um, so do i see a role for normal fluids I, i think so tom i think something has to be better than nothing these mm-hmm. patients are volume depleted and as such they need the volume uh, expansion and they need to be uh, fluid resuscitated uh, in, in order to sort of address these underlying reversible causes. Uh, so yes, I do, I do see a role for uh, fluid resuscitation and I do see a place in the absence of blood products for, uh, for fluid resuscitation with mm-hmm. uh, normal saline or with crystalloid. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, I think it's just being mindful, isn't it? Like of the things we mentioned, the things we're going to mention about just those, you know, how much we're giving and et cetera, et cetera. But I think, like you said, it has a role. It's just being mindful at the same time, isn't it, as well? Yeah, definitely. And I think I think you may have alluded to this previously. I'm not quite sure. I think J.R. Kalkin, the European Resuscitation Council, sort of advocate that you may have to administer up to three litres of mm. fluid in, in some of these patients. And... And I think that is true for some of these patients who are truly hypovolemic, yeah. who have resulted from a, a true hypovolemic presentation. Um, and as you say, it is just being mindful, and I think it's key to hand over, if you're handing over your patient, uh, being specific about how much fluid they've also received, yeah. um, just with regards to ongoing care um, and some of the, the uh, detrimental effects that they may have to look at as a result of that also. Mm-hmm. So next um, in the hot principle was the oxygenation um, of these patients. So Ryan, I'll kind of pop you on a bit of a, a, a open question here then. Um, so is there anything we need to be kind of particularly careful of with um, venting these patients? Like I've looked at some um, literature before surrounding um, cardiac sort of, uh, what's the word, depression in yeah, yeah. venting these patients too heavily because you're increasing sort of intrathoracic volumes, aren't you? Yeah, yeah, it, very much exactly what you've said. If we consider that these polytrauma patients or these patients in traumatic cardiac arrest um, likely have quite a significant degree of hypovolemia, um, 
what we don't want to be doing is overventilating these patients. All of these patients, they will be positively pressure ventilated, whether that's via an eye gel or whether that's via a, an endotracheal tube. Um, and if we overventilate these patients who are positively pressure ventilated, what we're going to do in turn is increase their intrathoracic pressure, mm-hmm. which subsequently is going to decrease their cardiac cardiac output. Excuse me. Um, so I think we need to have that fine balance about oxygenating the patient, but also having quite a consideration for their hemodynamics. Um, and what I would probably just say about that is it's just having a real consideration for how you're ventilating the patient. It's a one hand on the bag. It's a gentle squeeze. Focus on your end tidal waveform. I would probably say ventilating just to the point where we're seeing chest rise and fall mm-hmm. and not overventilating these patients is, is probably in the situation of hypovolemia or hemorrhage are a real crucial step in preventing deterioration. We don't want to impede sort of venous return any more than they already have. Exactly that, exactly that. We're almost, if we're fighting against ourselves, if we're trying to bring the pressure up with fluid resuscitation and then we're overventilating them, we're going to see the negative effects of that. And exactly as you say, reducing their preload and subsequently their uh, their cardiac output. Cool. Um, So next one, tension pneumothorax then. So for um, non-critical care teams, such as myself, like your, your regular paramedic on the road, um, we're going to be managing these patients for a, for a needle um, thoraco, thoric thoracocentesis. Oh, that's a posh word, isn't it? But essentially, chest decompressions with a large bore cannula, isn't it? Yeah. Um, so we'll be popping in a um, large bore cannula into the second intercostal space and the midclavicular line bilaterally just to see if we can take any of the pressure off this patient's mm-hmm. um, chest. You guys on the critical care side of things, you do something a little bit different, don't you? Yeah, um, so uh, as a critical care paramedic or, or any members of our critical care team, uh, we would do a finger thoracostomy mm-hmm. uh, rather than a needle decompression. I so, so prefer needle decompression to, to the other posh one, <laughs> thoracocentesis. <laughs> thoracocentesis, yeah, yeah, yeah. yes. Yeah, because nobody would understand me if I tried to say that. <laughs> um, yeah, but it, very simply, it is, again, identifying the correct landmarks. Uh, we would use a scalpel to make an incision between the ribs. Uh, we would bluntly dissect through the muscle um, and through the tissue and get a finger in there to open up that hole and, and allow any air to escape and hopefully allow that lung to reinflate. Uh, so we can have positive findings. It's also diagnostic in the sense that you can see if the lung is down, which would confirm you've got a an underlying uh, pneumophoracy. Um, and if you get blood from it, then it also is confirmation that there's likely a hemophorax. Mm-hmm. Um, so as well as the sort of therapeutic benefits of that intervention, it's a bit diagnostic as well. Yeah, and I should imagine in a certain cohort of patients where uh, large bore cannula is just not going to be big enough is it? it's not made for that purpose is it so it's not going to be large enough in some patients to actually penetrate yes um, yeah definitely and i think that's that's quite well documented uh within the literature that that there is limitations to a a needle decompression especially when using a cannula that's not designed for such an intervention um and as you say those with uh perhaps an increased bmi where the uh chest wall thickness is increased or the landmarks are more difficult to ascertain then then it is preferential mm. and more likely to be successful by doing a uh, surgical finger thoracostomy. There's some quite there's an interesting uh, study done actually that um, I mean it's a little bit old now it's 2005 mm. um, but I thought it was quite interesting because this isn't the kind of thing that us frontline clinicians in an ambulance service are going to be doing day to day is it really sort of decompressing people's chests um, so there was a study done in 2005 by uh, Ferry and McCoven um, et al. They ran a study of 25 emergency physicians, so not quite ambulance sort of uh, yeah. clinicians as such, but anyway, they ran a cohort of 25 clinicians. Um, so 84% of them, so 21 of them, um, were ATLS certified. Now, the correct landmark was named by 22 of them, so 88% of these physicians got the landmarks mm-hmm. anatomically correct when asked. Only 15 of them, so 60%, 
were able to correctly identify the second intercostal space on a human volunteer and actually successfully carry out. You know, that's quite... That's it's quite considerable. Yeah. But yeah, I think what you say with... Um, what, what really, if we're being honest, is quite low percentages in identifying the correct uh, anatomical landmarks. And I suppose it just adds to the fact that um, it is an infrequent use skill. It's not something we train or sim for, and uh, actually the, it's great being able to identify or name the landmarks, but actually the uh, process of identifying them can be quite difficult, mm -hmm. uh, especially in a uh, patient population with quite drastic um, differences in body habitus. Yeah. So, um, thoracotomies then, or tamponade. Um, much be worth coming back to real quick just to kind of summarize um, any points on that. Um, yeah. Any thoughts? Um, any thoughts? Yeah, I suppose the first thing to say, um, and this isn't... I suppose the first thing to say about uh, cardiac tamponade, um, it's probably just having that early call and that early request for an enhanced care team. If mm -hmm. you're with a patient, who's got uh, a penetrating trauma yeah. to his uh, to his chest wall or to his thoracic region. Um, I think definitely there's a lot of merit in having that early request for an enhanced care team um, for treatment, but also in case of deterioration. And that mm -hmm. may then result in a thoracotomy. Uh, off the basis of that, and uh, like we'll talk about sort of the area we're currently sat in doing this podcast, I think within Birmingham, we're very fortunate that we've got a lot of enhanced care teams and uh, basic schemes available to us. But probably more so importantly in these cases is we've got hospitals very close to us. Yeah, absolutely. And if we've got a patient who's still got an output, who's got a central stab wound or central penetrating wound, then I would definitely encourage people just to move to hospital. Yeah, um, if you can be at a trauma centre, a major trauma centre, by the time you've waited for yes. you know, both uh, a critical care team to uh, either rendezvous with you, you know, rendezvous with you or get to scene, then they've got to start performing and getting a, like, you know, a quick handover and stuff. By the time they've done that, if you can get to a major trauma centre in less than 10 minutes, just, yes, just go. Yes, very on. much so, very much so. Um, the treatment for those still with an output with a, a central penetrating wound from an enhanced care team. And, and, and honest, I normally don't like this terminology, but it is diesel. Uh, mm. We're not going to do vast amounts of intervention. And any intervention that we do as, as a collective, as a team on scene, it's all temporizing. It's all just buying that time to get them to the definitive care. So I think if we can have a few sort of take home points for this, I, this podcast, I think one of the biggest ones is uh, recognising the need just to move to a, a hospital yep. um, in those with penetrating trauma. Yep. Um, but if in the unfortunate case that uh, the patient has suffered trauma or penetrating trauma to uh, the chest wall and they go into a traumatic cardiac arrest or a, a low outflow state as a result and there's an enhanced care team on scene, then uh, they may want to undertake a thoracotomy so actually gaining access uh, via surgical means, I don't know how else you would do it, um, to the heart mm. um, to treat that underlying tamponade to promote the contractility and, and allow for effective resuscitation in, in these individuals. Sure. Um, it's just dawned on me, we haven't actually mentioned TXA at all yet as well. Um, yeah, the, yeah no, we haven't, <laughs> the, have we? The, the wonder drug <laughs> <laughs> in all of this. Um, you know, so... I suppose these patients, when we come to them, they're going to be wanting TXA rather quickly, aren't they? Yeah, so TXA, and again, my my answer is by no means the right answer, and I think we could ask this question to a room full of people and get, get a few different answers regarding TXA. Mm. Um, for me, if the patient's in a true traumatic cardiac arrest state um, as a result of trauma, hence the traumatic cardiac arrest state, um, I think TXA would go down on my uh, list of priorities when they're in, in cardiac arrest. Mm. I think at the point of peri-arrest or at the point where they achieve ROSC, then I'd very quickly want to get TXA administered to them. But intra-arrest, quite like the adrenaline, quite like the closed chest compressions, I think I've got other um, priorities, priorities other treatments that need yeah. to be carried out in a, in a timely fashion. Yeah. 
So at what what point would you be considering the TXA in in a active ongoing arrest? Then would you, you said you, you would you correct the um, hypovolemia? Obviously, first catastrophic hemorrhages, oxygenation. We want to get good airway in. Um, tension pneumothorax, like re- re- reverse all those reversible causes, and would it be after those causes have been reversed that that would yeah. be the point that TXA is considered? For me, very much that. I think if we identify what we suspect or or likely suspect to be the cause of the arrest, yeah. we treat those accordingly, we treat those promptly, and once those interventions have been done, whether that's the airway management and the decompression of the chest, the chest, excuse me, or the pelvic binder applied, yeah. once we've, we are confident as a team, we've corrected the reversible causes, then I would consider TXA. Yeah, I only, I only mentioned that just because I think there might be like a tendency um, for some clinicians to become a little bit, uh, well, it's a, it is a bit of a grey area, isn't it? And and when certainly when we're talking about things like the hot principles, like, you know, reversing hemorrhage H, you know, yes. the, the hypovolemia or hemorrhage, however you want to uh, put it, some people might maybe think that it goes in that box there just because they, temp- they typically kind of... Uh, uh, correlate, don't they? TXA to a hemorrhage control yes, measure, don't yes, they? Yes, they so do. It's, and I it's think interesting to kind of get your thoughts on uh, when in this kind of scenario we should be. Yeah, doing. and it's it's the two different entities. I think we put so much focus and emphasis on early TXA administration in the trauma patient who's still got an output, mm. uh, and we we recognise the uh, the benefit of TXA potentially in those patients. But we also are a bit more restrictive with how we treat those patients. It's minimal handling. It's uh, permissive hypotension. Uh, we, we administer fluids to, to pulses, whether that's a peripheral or a central pulse. But I think at the point where they went into cardiac arrest as a result of trauma, I don't think TXA is going to have the, uh, the positive impact on the underlying physiology that we would expect in somebody with an output. Yeah. So I think definitely the, the theme of the podcast treat the reversible causes, de-emphasize over treatments, and then administer them. Uh-huh. Cool. Um, maybe whilst you're here as well, we should maybe apply these kind of principles to um, a couple of cases, whether that be kind of hypothetical scenarios or whether you've got any cases that okay. you've been to that you kind of um, can think of that might be sort of useful examples um, of these principles yeah yeah I think we could do that and it's probably as you say quite a good way to uh, apply the hot principles into yeah, yeah. into a clinical setting um, so if we consider the patient who sustained a penetrating wound to his chest wall uh, subsequently he's went into a, a true traumatic arrest state or a, a low output state we, we, we need to consider and have a consideration about what has caused that and, and in this individual, it's very likely that he's hypovolemic, uh, so his heart is empty, and he may have an obstructive pathology, so there's a chance that he's got an underlying uh, tension or, or pneumothoracy. So what is our treatment priorities going to be? And we've already stated that this patient may be hypovolemic, uh, so the heart is empty. So in this case, closed chest compressions are unlikely going to be the priority for treatment but what we do want to prioritize is the control of what is likely going to be a catastrophic hemorrhage if it's present. We want to secure the airway and we want to decompress the chest, uh, be that via a needle or with a scalpel, depending on your skill set. We then want to achieve uh, access, whether that's large bore IV access or intraosseous access and uh, adequately fluid resuscitate this patient. And these patients may require large quantities of fluid resuscitation, be that uh, normal saline or blood. And that's an example of where closed chest compressions aren't a priority. But if we look at another case and consider a individual who's been witnessed to fall top to bottom down the stairs, The patient and you do not believe there was any medical event preceding this fall. Your assessment uh, reveals no apparent injuries and your most likely diagnosis is a isolated traumatic brain injury or a high spinal injury. Well, if we understand the mechanism of this injury, if this patient's got a high spinal injury, they've lost their sympathetic tone below the point of injury. 
They've got unopposed parasympathetic activity. So these patients are hugely vasodilated and as a result, likely bradycardic and hypotensive. But their heart is full. Their heart is likely to be working well. It's likely to be contracting well. So what does this patient need? And in my opinion, my opinion, excuse me, this patient needs a standard approach to ALS. They need early CPR. They need their airway secured. And they need adrenaline. They need adrenaline due to the vasoconstrictive effects of adrenaline. And in a neurogenic patient, that's going to be beneficial. And that's just two quite stark contrasts and two stark uh, differences in patient presentation. But I just think, um, Tom, it probably just, and I hope it does, explains how the uh, how these cases have different priorities in what we need to treat. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, and I think, like, if, if we are suspecting um, kind of a brain impact or like a traumatic brain injury yeah. uh, causing apnea in these patients, um, they're was uh, well Wilson et al 2016 states that it's sort of theorized that patients who have impact brain apnea um, can have positive outcomes if the apnea apnea and hypoxia is reversed in a timely manner Um, I'm guessing that's kind of what anecdotally you've potentially seen out on the road Um, with some of these patients or I I think potentially um, not just myself but I think we probably have as a as a as ambulance clinicians or pre-hospital clinicians probably is a better term have came across these patients Mm. Um, and I think it's very very apparent if we look at so road racing, so motorcycle racing, especially back home in Ireland, where we have medics who follow these lunatics, for a better word, who are travelling around Irish country roads at 200 plus miles per hour, yeah. and they follow on the motorbikes, these medics, they see them come off the bikes, um, and the difference there is they witness the incident, and they're able to apply treatment almost at the point of injury. Yeah. Um, and I think as you alluded to the previous uh, paper from uh, Mark Wilson and one of the co-authors was uh, John Hines who again was one of the uh, he was the motorcyclist wasn't he he, he died didn't he he on- did yes unfortunately John Hines was uh, probably the reason why Northern Ireland now has an air ambulance service mm. um, and just if anybody wants to go away after this and this is going off topic now and wants to read around traumatic cardiac arrest then I think a quick Google search, John Hines, cases from the races, and I think it'll explain everything a lot better than I'm currently trying to do. <laughs> um, but as you say, that this concept of impact brain apnea, it's it's a combination of apnea and, and a catecholamine surge. And I think that apnea is probably through two mechanisms. One is the fact that we've hit our heads and we become acneic, mm. um, but also then hypoxia as a result of the fact that we are probably occluded in our own airway if we haven't got airway patency um, and then this catecholamine surge so this huge spike in, in blood pressure and subsequently intracranial pressure but I think this is probably a preventable cause of death yeah. um, but one that needs to be identified and one that through uh, basic first aid opening somebody's airway delivering uh, appropriate oxygenation generally does have positive outcomes right on Oh. Is there sort of any other cases that you want to bring to mind, or should we move on to the the next or the, the one of the final topics? Um, I don't know about cases. I think, and again, I've I've probably sounded a bit like a broken record now. I think the the cases are important, um, and it's about understanding. And I've said this already numerous occasions that there is no one size fits all. Um, We've talked about a number of interventions uh, throughout this podcast so far. And as pre-hospital teams, we've got lots of interventions available to us. We've got chest compressions, needle decompression, surgical interventions, fluid resuscitation, TXA, etc., etc., etc. And not all of those are applicable to every traumatic cardiac arrest situation. You as a clinician be that through an experience of these jobs, be that through a work and diagnosis of why this patient has went into cardiac arrest, you need to determine what interventions that individual in front of you needs. Mm. It's a tailored approach to patient care. Um, and I think, I'll, I'll try and make up the last time I say that, but I just think it's such a vital point to realise that we need to, uh, we have the ingredients, we need to decide on the recipe of treatment. Yeah, I agree. You've got this kind of toolkit available to you, haven't like, um, you know, you've got this toolkit of 
uh, algorithms and, yes. and all these different kind of bits and bobs, and it's just trying to figure out which one it's well. And it's not a one size fits all approach, I think, is what I'm trying to say, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, very um, much so. Brill. So that kind of leads us on to um, our last topic, really, which is um, cessation of resuscitation in these patients. So, um, yeah, in these cases, then they're kind of split into two subgroups, aren't they, really? You've got blunt trauma on the one side of things, and you've got yeah. penetrating on the other. Yeah. Uh, it's probably quite important for ambulance clinicians to kind of just know where they stand in terms of um, calling it, for want of a better word, you know, to say, um, ceasing resuscitation in these patients. Mm-hmm. So this is from the GR Calc guidelines. In blunt trauma cases where ALS um, is being delivered and you've addressed all the reversible causes, clinical judgment may be applied as to whether or not uh, enhanced care assets um, may be accessed or the patient can be conveyed to an MTC uh, in a timely manner. If likely reversible causes of traumatic cardiac arrest have been treated and there is no ROSC after 20 minutes of ALS, resuscitation may stop. So that's the blunt trauma cases um, on the one hand. Penetrating trauma is slightly different. Mm-hmm. Um, so in penetrating traumatic cardiac arrest, patients should be transferred rapidly to hospital uh, because surgical intervention is often needed and it does remain one of those reversible causes on the hot principles. Um, so it, crew's safety should be considered, however, where there is a prolonged journey time in a moving vehicle. This is the kind of cases where we're going to be wanting to request early attendance of a critical care asset such as yourself um, because there's no mention or exclusion to the role of recognition of life extinct criteria in these penetrating trauma patients so your um, regular double crewed ambulance or um, sort of regular paramedic is not really it remains a bit of a grey area as to whether or not you can call a penetrating trauma doesn't it it, yeah, it does, and I think you've, you've given a really nice summary of that, and to be honest with you, um, when when you asked me about doing this, I had to relook at the GRCAL guidelines uh, myself about termination of resource within the uh, traumatic cardiac arrest setting. Um, and yeah, I think as you say, for, for the ambulance clinicians, I think there's quite clear guidelines there for the blunt trauma patient. If, if you felt that you've appropriately addressed the reversible causes, and there's been no signs of life or or evidence of improvement then after 20 minutes of, of resuscitation then yes you can stop uh stop resus um and again i've said it previously but i think in, in both of these instances get an early request for an enhanced care team uh, on scene uh, aside from the clinical interventions that we can provide i think there's also the the support for making these clinical decisions about uh, aggressive treatment or actually potentially termination of uh, resuscitation based on futility um, and yeah GRCalc it, it doesn't actually as you say it doesn't allude to any exclusion criteria or real indications as to when you can stop resuscitation and and I wonder if that's more as a result of in the blunt polytrauma patient it's it's likely to be a uh, a multitude of injuries and quite significant underlying physiology Whereas in the penetrating uh, patient, it, it's generally an isolated injury, which requires surgical intervention. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think we also have to consider downtime, and it alludes to the fact about uh, extended travel times, yeah, I think was the so, word in you used. Yeah, prolonged journeys to hospital in a moving vehicle have to be considered, it says. Yeah, and I think, to be honest, um, apart from a few instances or a few patient cohorts, we shouldn't really be transporting anybody in arrest. We should be trying to optimise the resuscitation attempts at scene. Yep. Um, and if there's been no improvement and we are X distance from hospital, which is quite extended, then potentially recognising that uh, some of these cases are futile and by putting our patient onto the back of an ambulance with ongoing resuscitation and transporting under emergency conditions uh, to hospital, potentially could endanger uh, the welfare of the staff, mm-hmm. both the staff and the patient. Um, so potentially just having uh, in this region one of the uh, critical care paramedics uh, as a solo practitioner or uh, one of the enhanced care teams, so one of our CCPs and trauma and pre-hospital doctors, excuse me, 
aside from the clinical interventions, they can just help with the uh, the, the, the decision making on scene as well yep. um, regarding ongoing treatment or futility. and that is kind of brings us to the end of this podcast so we'll have a quick summary of what we've looked at um, today Uh, we've been talking about traumatic cardiac arrest we've been talking about the incidence of these cases and the etiologies surrounding them we've looked into the hot principles and management of a traumatic cardiac arrest and we've also looked at termination of resus in these patients um, any kind of final thoughts from you, Ryan? Um, yeah, I think I think first of all, Tom, uh, just a thank you from myself for inviting me along today. No, thank and, you for uh, thanks for coming on and eating some Viennese swirls. Yeah, I'll, I'll always come if there's cake, um, <laughs> and I hope it has been of benefit. Um, but yeah, I think the final thing to say is just a bit of a quick summary about all the points we've raised. Um, t- sort of take-home messages: traumatic cardiac arrest. It's a symptom, not a diagnosis. So treat the underlying reversible causes, prioritize that treatment, and there may be a need to de-emphasize other treatments such as closed chest compressions, but that's not to say there's not a role for them in traumatic cardiac arrest. Traumatic cardiac arrest is not futile, and in certain cases it's got similar survival rates to medical arrest, so yes, we should aggressively be treating these cases. And I think the big take-home, which I think has been very apparent to everybody, is the importance of a tailored and individual patient-centered care um, and you deciding on what treatment the uh, the patient in front of you requires. Um, But no, I think think that's that's everything for myself and uh, just thank you again for having me and uh, yeah, we'll talk soon. Yeah, no worries. Thanks so much for coming in and thank you to everyone for listening. This has been Medic in the Middle. See you next time. Thank you.